0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and it's that time again. One that's either loved or hated by kids all over the region. Time to head back to school.
1: Adler? Here. Anderson? Anderson? Here. Bueller? Bueller? Bueller?
0: And in honor of this season of renewed academic vim and vigor, Today we are learning the ropes, with a show all about the education we receive in the classroom, on the streets, and on the job. But we'll begin today's show not just by learning the ropes.
2: Uh, You're doing this one right?
3: Correct.
0: But by chopping them, blending them, maybe even frosting or glazing them.
2: Though first... The sour cream is actually 8.25 ounces. We measured it out. Okay.
0: We have
4: to measure them. So that would be the wet ingredients? Yeah. Which is the blueberries? Wet or dry? Um, other, yeah. Other, see? Oh, <laughs> you guys were inspecting that question. We're in one of the
0: many food prep areas at Union Kitchen, the food incubator in northeast Washington, where local pastry chef Chris Tibbs is teaching Cedric Banks to make blueberry muffins.
5: Okay. So, with this, you can just put your blueberries in now because you're mixing this by hand.
0: And that's just one
5: cup? Cup and a
6: half.
0: okay. Banks is a big guy, in his 40s so and pretty new to cream. baking. So as he maneuvers from cutting board to mixing bowl to KitchenAid, I'm not sure how he feels about a reporter capturing his every move with a handheld recorder and microphone.
4: Am I making you nervous? I don't get nervous. You know what they say, if you're not getting shot at or mortared, how can you get nervous?
0: See, that's the thing. Cedric Banks is actually Sergeant Major Cedric Banks. During his 20-plus years in the U.S. Army, he deployed numerous times. From
4: Desert Shield, Desert Storm, all the way up to Iraq today, Kosovo, Bosnia. The only operation I haven't served in was uh, Afghanistan.
0: It was in his most recent Iraq deployment that an explosion left him with a damaged neck and back, as well as traumatic brain injury.
4: Yeah, I was in a hospital for quite a while, in and out, over the last few years, and uh, got medically retired about a year and a half ago now.
0: Which brings us to today's baking lesson. Banks is one of 10 veterans in the inaugural class of Dog Tag Inc. The new DC based nonprofit seeks to educate and train newly transitioned veterans with
4: disabilities to become entrepreneurs. And what I want to do, Dog Tag, just fell right in line with what my passion is. Like, my passion is motivational speaking, my passion is life coach and overall helping people.
0: So how will baking muffins help banks pursue those passions? Well, says Dogtag Chief Operating Officer Megan Ogilvie, it's funny you should ask.
7: Trying to convince the Marine to come into a program that's about baking, you know, it was a little bit tough sell, but then obviously the, the bakery is a, a vehicle to show them how to run a small business.
0: This fall, on Grace Street in Georgetown, Dog Tag will open Dog Tag Bakery, with Cedric Banks and his colleagues comprising part of the
7: staff, both front of house and back of house. So the veterans,
0: or fellows as they're called, will, yes, be whipping up muffins and cakes and cookies.
7: We really want them to throw some flour around and get their hands in the dough. But they'll also be
0: handling marketing, doing inventory, even assisting with management. That's why Dog Tag Inc. has teamed with the Georgetown School of Continuing Studies, or SCS, to help the fellows earn a Certificate of Business Administration.
7: This is actually a certificate program that any civilian can take, but we've actually included uh, three more classes. Uh, communication in the business field, business statistics, and we added um, an entrepreneurship class. Now,
3: we have a few more minutes. I want to show you this graph, which ties into the previous one, investment average return. Remember I talked about average return?
0: I recently sat in on a corporate finance class at Georgetown SCS, taught by instructor Achilles Mavrakis.
3: What's the ultimate goal here? Remember the term, don't put your uh, eggs in one basket. Yes, Let me ask you this. You have five stocks. All of them are airline stocks. Are you diversified?
4: No. the no. Okay. same
3: entity. Good.
0: Megan Okulvie so, says cool. once the Grace Street facility is ready, it'll house all of Dogtag's entities, so the bakery, of course, as well as classroom and office space. Veterans will spend their six-month paid fellowship staffing the bakery, taking classes, and working with dog tag staff on job placement.
7: And that'll be a lot of interviewing, networking along those lines, and making sure once they do graduate and leave our program that they already have their next step planned. Because veterans are the best employees. They know discipline, they know responsibility, and they deliver. There's a mission. And so these are going to be viable candidates for employment.
0: And eventually, viable candidates for starting their own businesses. And that thrills Maurice Jones, another Dog Tag fellow at our muffin-making lesson. What's your military experience?
8: 22 years in the Army, IT telecommunications.
0: And what kind of small business would you want to start up?
8: I'm IT heavy, so I want to start my own IT firm, IT consulting firm.
0: Jones says it isn't just the training Dog Tag offers that will help him get there. It's the overall attitude toward wounded veterans.
8: Yeah, they come in, Maurice, how are you doing? You doing anything? You had a great weekend? Stuff like that, that shows that you care. I mean, they they treat us like adults, professionals. They don't look at our disability as a hindrance or, or a disability at all. They're looking to provide us with the skills and the knowledge to progress and succeed in any endeavor that we got going on.
4: The way Cedric Banks sees it. It's really looking at not the disability, but the ability. In other words. Let's prove what you can do, not what you can't do. And what they can do,
0: both he and Maurice Jones agree, is continue to serve their community long after they serve in
4: uniform. How do you use the service that you put a veteran through to better our communities once we get back? Because we don't stop being who we are once we take off the uniform. We're still driven. We still got values. We still got goals. And we still want to share and we still want to serve. And Dog Tag Inc. plans on helping them do
0: that across the country. The company sees the bakery as a model for other businesses outside the region. So in California, we may one day see a Dog Tag Surf Shop. In New York, a Dog Tag Bagelry. All of them launching pads for returning soldiers to follow their own recipe for a brighter and sweeter future. Dog Tag Bakery is scheduled for an early November opening in Georgetown. For more information on the business and applying for a fellowship, visit our website, metroconnection.org. The man we'll meet next is also starting a new career in life after years of personal turmoil. Andre Sims is 45, a D.C. resident, and over the years, he's been shot, stabbed, homeless, and in jail.
8: And I'm thankful that I'm still living because I used to walk around down Edgewood off the PCP. I used to walk around with two guns on my side. I used to rob people. People used to see me and, and cross the street.
0: But not anymore. Andre's back on his feet and working to find a job in his newly chosen profession as a barber. Tatiana Safranova brings us his story.
9: Andre Sims is a barber without a shop. He just graduated from hair school, and until he finds a place to work, Andre does house calls. Today, he has an appointment on Gerard Street, just off North Capitol. He carries his tools and a black backpack, the clippers in one pocket, the blades in a plastic bin in another. For now, he's just got the basic stuff.
8: I lost like $500 worth of equipment three days before I uh, completed hair school. So I just got my my 76ers, my Andy Masters, and my Andy uh, T-outliners. But I wish I had my detailers and all my other good stuff, but I'm going to make a do-with-a-do boo. In other words, I'm going to make it work.
9: Andre's client today is his friend, Junior. The guys met 35 years ago on Girard Street, when Andre's family moved to the neighborhood.
8: We used to build go-karts and, and race them down the hill. And everybody in the neighborhood had a go-kart. And he, he had one of the fast ones. I had a fire truck. We used to steal people's shopping carts to take their wheels off of them so we can put them on our go kart. I'm ready. About to get, it, get the show started. Mm-hmm.
9: Andre says if there was ever trouble, he was usually the one causing it by 6th grade he was selling drugs kids bought joints out of his lunchbox for a dollar a pop and by the time he was in 8th grade andre was using pcp a drug he and his friends called boat
8: we had a thing called a breakfast club and the breakfast club consist of getting high before we went to school so getting the pcp the the, the boat that would be our breakfast so and then after the breakfast club, i go to school, hang out for school. Then after that, you know, smoke some boat. But I mainly, you know, went to the go-go every week. Wherever they had it and when they had it, I was there. But that was on, like, on the weekends and stuff like that. Typical day after school, then, you know, shoot dice, gamble, uh, hang out with the girls. I knew right from wrong, but it's like, for some reason to me, wrong always felt better. <laughs>
9: After high school, Andre landed in prison. He spent six years behind bars, and when he got out, he kept selling and using drugs. PCP was his drug of choice. He dipped joints and cigarettes in PCP for a high that made him feel invincible. But by 2000, Andre was anything but.
8: Yeah, man, that was one of the hardest moments of my life when she passed September 9, 2000. I mean, that clicked like that, clicked a button.
9: He's talking about his girlfriend, Deshawn Robinson. She was 18 when they met at a roller skating rink. Andre was almost 30. They had two kids, Davon and Diamond. When Deshawn died in a car accident, the children were just one and two years old.
8: You know, I, I guess I try to hold it in, hold it in, and then, you know, my daughter was one. And, you know, I guess it was a couple of months after, you know, after all the, I want to say newness of, of their mom's death wearing off, and you stop receiving help from people and stuff like that. And I had to, to do her hair, so I was so frustrated. I just started crying. I was like, man, why couldn't it have been me? You know what I'm saying? Why, why your mother leave me like this? You know, once my kid's mother passed, and it was like, I had to shut everything down, man. Stop selling drugs, all that, man. So it's like, I just had to do what I needed to do.
9: Andre gave up the PCP. He placed his kids in daycare and held down jobs at a grocery store and at George Washington University Hospital. He also took care of his mother. She died in 2008. In June, Andre graduated from the barber styling course at Bennett Career Institute in Northeast D.C. And for good luck, classmates pinned dollars to each other's clothes on the last day of school, but Andre had just left hundreds of dollars' worth of haircutting tools on the bus and needed more than just luck.
8: A couple of my classmates gave me, gave me blades, and, mm-hmm. which was like $30. Instead of them pin- pinning a the dollar, I, I appreciate that more. Mm-hmm. I sure did.
9: Money's still tight. Andre gave up his cell phone service to pay for Davon and Diamond's back-to-school supplies. One day, he hopes to open up a shop with Asia, his older daughter, from another relationship. It'll be called Daddy and Daughter's Hair Care and Spa. But until then, he's back in a neighborhood. He chats up the people walking by, offering discounted cuts. For the elderly, he'll often do the cuts for free. Anything to practice his hand and find new clients. I'm Tatiana Safranova.
10: After the break, I think when you have any period of change like that, students are going to feel it. So there were points of confusion and just students really worrying about the direction of the university.
0: Students and alums chime in on the future of Howard University. It's just ahead as Metro Connection continues here on
7: WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson and support for WAMU 885's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear and welcome back to Metro Connection where today we are learning the ropes. Coming up in just a bit, we'll visit a once-abandoned D.C. high school that's about to celebrate the 10th anniversary of its grand reopening. First, though, we'll head to one of the city's institutions of higher learning, Howard University. Since Congress chartered Howard shortly after the Civil War, D.C.'s historically black college has served as a training ground for some of the best and brightest African-American minds. Among its alums are mayors, ambassadors, Rhodes Scholars, Hollywood stars, Nobel Prize winners, and a Supreme Court justice, just to name a few. But the past few years have been particularly vexing for Howard because of financial issues and a whole lot of turnover in the president's office. With a new administration in place at the university, Lauren Ober paid a visit to see how the campus community feels about the future.
11: The sound of huge plastic bins rolling over pavement is a familiar one this time of year. All over the district, hordes of college students armed with shower caddies and mini fridges are moving into their dorms. Some of them have people like Chris Washington to help them out. My cousin Jalen is a freshman, so I decided to come down and make it happen for him. Following in cousin's footsteps? Something like that. Moving into my old dorm. That would be Drew Hall, one of Howard University's male dorms. It makes sense that Jalen is matriculating at Howard, since his cousin is the president of the university's alumni association and a big booster of the historically black institution. That's five and a half years I've spent. But while Washington is passionate about his alma mater, he admits it's seen its fair share of struggles. Over the past few years, enrollment declined, academic rankings plunged, and credit ratings took a nosedive. To make matters worse, the federal government cut Howard's funding allocation by $25 million for the 2014 fiscal year. Plus, the university has been plagued by claims of financial mismanagement, and in late 2013, its president, Sidney Rebeau, abruptly stepped down. But rather than dwell on those challenges, Chris Washington is choosing to look to the future. And that future will be shaped by Howard's newly installed president, Dr. Wayne A.I.
8: Frederick. The new president is one of my classmates so i'm really excited about that because for the first time in my generation there's a president who i can relate
11: to frederick is a howard trained cancer surgeon who served as interim president after his predecessor resigned and he seems to have widespread support on this campus lorenzo morris who has taught at howard since 1982 is chair of the faculty senate He says he's already impressed with the new president's efforts.
3: He has already shown a sensitivity to pursuing and encouraging development. He had a variety of people visit from the Wall Street area who show an interest.
11: Morris suggests that Frederick's MBA, which he also earned from Howard, will likely help guide his decisions about the business side of the institution.
3: I think you're going to see a a significant corporate presence to encourage research and development in areas where there might be collaborative interest.
11: Carly Chenault is a Ph.D. candidate in political science and active in the Graduate Student Council. She says she's encouraged by what she's seen from Frederick already.
12: He's kind of been a breath of fresh air as far as being very approachable and more transparent than our past president. He has an open door policy, so you really feel like if I have an issue, I can come to you and I
5: can talk to you about it.
11: The new president has been a shot in the arm for the campus community. But upperclassmen like Courtney Robinson haven't forgotten the upheaval of the past few years.
10: I think when we have any period of change like that, students are going to feel it. So there were points of confusion and just students really worrying about the direction of the university.
11: The period of anxiety about the climate on campus and the value of a Howard degree seems to have been brief. Robinson, a senior political science major, is excited about what's coming down the pike.
10: Change is not something that everyone's comfortable with, but I do think that the direction that Howard's going and
11: the change that's happening now is good. Part of what's changing is the look of the campus. Two new undergraduate dorms have gone up, and an interdisciplinary research center is under construction. Plus, the student center and the undergrad library are getting facelifts, and there's a shiny new fleet of shuttles to transport students to the university's various campuses in Brookland and Forest Hills. Leighton Watson says that's all stuff that boosts morale. He's president of the Howard University Student Association.
8: Even though
1: you would think it may be a little bit unsettling, students are excited to see change and excited to see progressivism on an on a HBCU campus.
11: But what Watson hopes won't change is the university's legacy of service and leadership – A legacy built by alums like Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, Nobel laureate Ralph Bunch, and civil rights leader Stokely Carmichael.
1: I want students also feeling that sort of vision and impact is on Howard's campus now, too. Not that we're fighting the same issues, but that Howard is still taking a leadership position and making sure to speak for a demographic that's underrepresented in many cases.
11: That's what alumni president Chris Washington hopes for, too a strong future for the university. That and more big donations from alums, especially since his two-year-old daughter is already pegged for the class of 2030. I'm Lauren Ober. Are you a Howard alum, student,
0: or staffer? What do you think of where the school is headed? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at metro. So as we've been hearing, college kids are moving into dorms all over town right now. And among them are students who don't just need to learn their class and internship schedules. They have to learn how to navigate American culture and life in D.C. We're talking about global students. And for nearly 80 years, a spot on R Street Northwest has served as their home away from home. It's called the International Student House. And Julie Alderman recently took a tour.
12: As you walk in the door of the International Student House, you don't feel like you're in D.C. anymore. The house itself is a Tudor-style mansion, making you feel like you've been dropped in the English countryside. And then there are the different languages you hear. (laughs) (laughs) At any given time, the International Student House is home to about 100 students from all over the world. Cynthia Bunton was a resident of the house in the 1970s and is now the secretary of the board of directors. She says the house's history is embedded in cross-cultural communication.
3: The International Student
13: House was created by the Quakers because they were concerned about the rise of fascism and the rise of Nazism in Europe, and they felt that the best way to promote international understanding was give people an opportunity in a setting to really get to know each other and to exchange
8: ideas.
12: Bunton, who has since gone on to work for the State Department, says she remembers times when international understanding was unique to the International Student House.
8: I remember
13: sitting down one of the first nights I was here with an Israeli and a Palestinian. And they were talking about the Middle East. In the Middle East, for them to sit down at a cafe and have an hour-long conversation or dinner was just not something that you could do.
12: Inside the massive dining room, residents gather for breakfast and dinner every day during the week. Laurence de Clevier, a resident from France, says these moments make for an easy social life.
10: The house is very good because I don't really need to make social effort. We have breakfast and diner provided. It's very good because it's a big moment in the house when we meet everybody, discuss, and it's very easy. Sharon El-Adad, a resident from Israel, says she didn't expect the friendships she made in the house to be as important as they have been. You have this community that is always surrounding you. Even me, myself, when I first came, didn't think that it was so important and it could really affect you in your day-to-day life. But when you're away from home and you're so far away from home, it makes a big influence and impact on your day. Sharon says she and her friends like to explore D.C., especially the city's restaurant scene. We always go out for dinner on the weekends, and it's always someone else's turn to take us to a new restaurant that will serve uh, a dish from back home. And, I mean, it's a win-win situation because, A, you get to eat, and everyone loves to eat, and then, B, you get to learn someone, your best friend's culture and tradition. And that's just a learning experience in its own. Sharon, who was born in the U.S. and lived in Mexico and Venezuela, spent the past
12: year working for the White House and the Super PAC ready for Hillary. She is now approaching the end of her stay and plans to head back to Israel in October. The escalating conflict between Israel and Hamas has made the past few months very difficult. But, Sharon says, the other international students in the house helped make her experience a positive one, despite the tragedy escalating at home.
10: Being in the international student house, honestly, not a day goes by where one of my friends don't don't ask me how I am, how my parents are, how my family is doing. And, you know, maybe they don't know what kind of effect it really does on me. But it really does go like a long, long way during my day because I, I really can't explain to anyone else and not, not a lot of people can really understand it. So it's really good to know that you're not alone. Janet León, a student from Mexico who spent her summer interning at
12: the Organization for American States, says even the small interactions she has with people here make the International Student House unique.
2: One of the
10: best things about the house is it's just the little chats you have on the hallways with people Mm
2: -hmm. like maybe you don't need an activity to have a special moment
10: now i have a friend in the world that if i want to go there i know that she would like accept me at her house and so that you have different friends from different
2: countries so you can go anywhere you want and you know that you would have someone there for you
12: i'm julie alderman
0: We'll zip over to Northeast D.C. now, to McKinley Technology High School. Back in 1997, the city decided to shut McKinley down, and it was abandoned. Thing is, though, much of the school's equipment and classroom materials were still left inside, so it wasn't long before McKinley became a ready target for vandals and squatters. In 2000, a group of high school and college reporters working for a newspaper called Young D.C. broke a story about what was going on inside the school. One of the co-writers was Kenneth Burns, who now reports for WYPR in Baltimore. Kenneth went back to McKinley this month to look at how the once-decaying facility is doing today as it celebrates the 10th anniversary of its reopening.
1: It was a Saturday morning 14 years ago when I first walked into McKinley Tech. There were broken windows, a gym floor ruined by raining trash, and books that had been ripped apart. That was equipment that could have been used at other D.C. schools, but it was now destroyed
6: you couldn't tell what was vandalism from addicts and vandal real vandalism from the last people who were supposed to lock it up. It
1: wasn't even locked up when we went there.
6: No, it wasn't locked up at all.
1: That's Kathy Mannix, the executive director of Young D.C. She and I first visited McKinley after one of our writers, Ashley Allen, approached Mannix to tell her that some of her classmates had been able to get inside the school.
6: She was a middle schooler then, and she was really concerned about whether her... Classmates should be doing this.
1: She interviewed her classmates who entered the building while I wrote about how bad things were inside. Steinway pianos destroyed, broken greenhouse windows, and broken glass under our feet as we walked some parts of the school.
6: It was hard to figure out your lead without telling people, oh, this is how you break into an abandoned school. Do you remember what I said to you?
1: I don't remember, but I do remember when we were on uh, Kojo Kojonambi show. I disavowed any knowledge of going into the building. (laughs) (laughs) Kojo noticed how cautious we were in writing the story when we were on his show. You were careful to point out that you didn't trespass yourself. You didn't go into the school yourself? No. Now that 14 years have passed, I can admit there may have been some trespassing involved. That was not the case, however, when I visited McKinley earlier this month. My tour this time was an official one led by First Sergeant Raymond Dickinson, who has taught at McKinley since the school reopened 10 years ago. Our tour begins on the third floor, where the library has been restored and recently expanded. The second floor greenhouse is ready for the plants that will be grown by November. Each floor has trophy cases, celebrating the school's accomplishments. Since we
8: reopened, our cheerleaders have won every year, but but two, and we had one championship basketball team. And like uh, Dr. Jones told you, the football
1: team won last year. Then we get What's to up? the first floor.
8: Yeah, this is our gym.
1: The last time I was here, it was a you mess. You might get some
8: of that noise there. That. That's a practice in there for you. So they, they trying to win this year. So my department is over here, and engineering is over here down those hallways. Well,
1: let me uh, point something out to you. Right around where that T is, right, that was like the center of where all the trash was. I remember looking right there and seeing like all sorts of stuff, including a recycling bin from Montgomery County. Is that right? Yeah. I can believe that. Dickinson credits the leadership of the school, past and present, for pulling McKinley through difficult times and creating a good learning environment for students. Among those leaders is David Pender, an instructional superintendent with DCPS who served as McKinley's second principal. He'd seen the rise and fall of McKinley. I had an opportunity to see pictures of homeless people who had been living in the school during its transition from 1997 to 2002 before it was, um, it was started in Reconstruction. McKinley was founded in 1902, a year after William McKinley, the 25th President of the United States, was assassinated. The school has been in the Eckington neighborhood since 1928. It was segregated from opening until 1954 when President Eisenhower ordered the school be integrated. When the school's enrollment fell to 500 in the mid-90s from a peak of more than 2,000 in the 60s, McKinley closed amid the D.C. budget crisis in 1997. Pender also saw the school's rebirth. There were a number of of ideas in the early and the late 90s about potentially turning it into high-priced condominiums, um, into potential charter school. There were a number of things, and uh, Mayor Williams and his team led an effort to create a technology-hub school. The students making their way into McKinley now are too young to remember the debates about the school's future or the derelict condition it was in before it reopened. But for older adults who remember those days, the 10-year anniversary of McKinley's reopening on Monday will likely be a powerful reminder of just how far the school has come. I'm Kenneth Burns.
0: You can read Kenneth Burns' original article about what McKinley looked like in the year 2000. We have a link on our website, metroconnection.org. Unlocking the mysteries of language, learning, and the
3: brain. Studies that look at brain function are in the pipeline now as a result of what we've done here. And that's what's exciting about this field is the more you study, the more studies you can find to do later on.
0: That and more is coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU
8: 88.5.
0: To Metro Connection, I'm Rebecca Shear, and with school back in session, this week we are learning the ropes. And we'll kick off this part of the show with a little learning and science, specifically the science of the brain. What we experience, what we learn, helps shape our brains. But a group of researchers at Georgetown University Medical Center have shown that the language we first learn can affect our brain structure in fascinating ways. Now, this new study isn't about a person who, say, first learns English versus a person whose
3: native language is French or Russian.
0: No, this study is about a person like, say, this guy.
3: Hello, my name is Daniel Koo. I'm an associate professor at Gallaudet University in the psychology department. Koo was born deaf. Here he's using American Sign Language to communicate through
0: interpreter William
3: Kendrick. But ASL was not the first language Koo learned. I grew up originally in the oral methodology, meaning learning English through lip reading. And later, I learned sign language as a second language. And that experience, he says, is actually pretty common. 90% of deaf children are born to parents who can hear. So many deaf children use English as their first language, just like I did growing up.
0: Thing is, though, most studies on deafness have been conducted only with people who use ASL
3: as a first language. And they never looked at the cross-section of deaf people who are also primarily English users. But we can't assume... Too many things just from one specific population who grew up in one specific language experience. So we were the first study to really look at both groups of deaf people and compare the structures that are impacted by those language choices that are made developmentally as they are growing up.
0: And that was a huge revelation for GOMC postdoctoral fellow Olumide Olulade, the study's lead author.
3: You know, I always thought that, you know, everyone who was deaf used sign language. And to find out that most of the people who are deaf actually grew up using English, I think it's important that, you know, our scientific studies from a scientific perspective provide information that can be used for the full population.
0: To that end, he explains the research team used magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, to analyze the brains of four different groups. One,
3: deaf people who grew up using American Sign Language. Two, deaf people who grew up using English um, or cued speech. Three, hearing people who grew up using American Sign Language, which they learned from their deaf parents. And four, hearing people who grew up using English.
0: And what the team found was that with all deaf participants, regardless of their native language, their auditory cortex looked different from their hearing counterparts. Mainly, it had a smaller volume of white matter. That's the tissue affecting how the brain learns
9: and functions. But what we found is that if you are raised using American Sign Language, you also find some of those differences in the parts of the brain that help us speak or, or use language.
0: What Guinevere Eden is speaking of is gray matter, which serves to process information. Eden directs GOMC's Center for the Study of Learning and says the volume of right hemisphere gray matter of deaf native ASL users is thicker than that of deaf native English users. Why? Well, perhaps because the right hemisphere handles visual spatial skills. And with its unique system of grammar, along with its movement of the hands, face, and torso, ASL is more spatial, English more linear.
9: Now, it doesn't mean that one or the other is better, but I think the interesting question will be when we study things in education, whether it's how we teach reading or whether how we do interventions, it's interesting to have that background information knowing that it's not just your sensory experience that that shapes the brain, but your language experience and that they interact with one another.
0: That's the biology of learning. And once we understand how learning happens, we can adjust our teaching methods so they'll have the greatest effect. But whatever the method, says Daniel Kuh, when it comes to teaching language to a child who's deaf or hard of hearing.
3: It's important that the deaf child just gets access and as complete access to a language as early as possible, regardless of English or sign language. It's important that they get that developmental exposure.
0: Because that exposure will help them connect with their world, engage with their community, and perhaps one day teach their children too. For more information on this study and for more resources on providing deaf children with access to language, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So this week's show is called Learning the Ropes, and the guy we'll meet next is learning the ropes of how to be a superhero. Spider-Man, to be exact. He portrays the legendary web-slinger in a touring performance called Marvel Universe Live, which brings to life more than two dozen classic comic book characters. The show hits a new arena every week and will be swinging through D.C. September 4th through the 7th before heading to Fairfax. Earlier in the run, Lauren
13: Landau traveled to Long Island's Nassau Coliseum and brings us this story. The cast of Marvel Universe Live still has a few hours to kill before showtime. In a practice room filled with weights, mats, and other exercise equipment, performers are schmoozing and preparing for the evening performance. Mo Frangi tells me the practice room is a safe zone, a place where the performers can work on new tricks and stunts. It's also where they have meetings and warm-up.
2: Usually about 45 minutes before a show starts, that's when I'll start jumping around. There'll definitely be music playing. As a dancer, I'll start freestyling. I'll start getting my blood pumping. Before you know it, I'm doing a lot of flips and I'm doing a lot of things that I might be doing in this show or just to get my body to feel comfortable in the air again before I get into costume and before I, I get on the stage.
13: It's important to stretch before performing any tricks, but Mo agrees to show me a few easy maneuvers, easy by his standards anyway. He starts with something called a Webster, an appropriately named trick for his character.
2: I'm playing Spider-Man. So this Webster consists of being able to do a front flip, In place while swinging a leg back and over around you, if that makes any sense. So you're standing upright, you step back with one foot, you swing the other leg back, you throw your upper body forward, you jump off the foot that's on the ground, and then you tuck your body and just land back on your feet.
13: Los Angeles has been Mo's home for more than three years, but before he moved to the city of angels, he lived in a DC suburb.
2: I was born in Dubai, moved to DC when I was nine, and grew up there up until I was 22. Uh, I grew up in uh, Alexandria. I grew up in Falls Church. I went to Annandale High School. Just that whole area I was kind of back and forth moving in and out of you know places when I was in school and just Northern Virginia I would consider home.
13: In the world of Marvel comics, Spider-Man develops his powers after being bitten by a radioactive spider. Mo's transformation required a lot more time and sweat than Peter Parker's. It all started when his mom signed him up for a taekwondo class, soon after they moved to the D.C. area.
2: Well, in northern Virginia, D.C. area, I definitely trained in taekwondo and martial arts, being able to learn how to throw and and take a punch. Also tricking, so flipping, backflips, twists, big roundoffs, a combination of gymnastics, breakdancing, martial arts, you know, even capoeira.
13: At 14, Mo received his first-degree black belt in the Korean martial art and started teaching. Eventually, he worked his way up to a fourth-degree black belt and gained other skills, notably something he calls tricking.
2: Tricking is a combination of flips, kicks, and twists. So growing up as a kid, Spider-Man was always my idol because he's the only character I could really relate to. He was always in the air. He was always flying around, jumping around, doing all these things.
13: So Spider-Man zips around on these spider-web kind of ropes, but I understand that you don't use any of that kind of rigging in in this show. So how do you get around the set as Spider-Man?
2: Well, it's actually, it's called a hand loop that that Spider-Man uses. And you put your hand in this loop, you grab the rope, and that is your support. You're supporting your entire body weight with this hand loop. We come down in teardrop position from the ceiling, basically, if you're looking up. And in the beginning, it was very scary to learn because I had never done anything like that before. But throughout the rehearsal process, we definitely took it one step at a time. And so the hand loop has been my best friend now. I trust it and I don't second guess or anything like that when I'm up there. I kind of just focus on the scene now.
13: But there is good reason to hesitate. Any attempt to defy gravity comes with a risk, which Mo knows all too well. On Christmas Day in 2010, a snowboarding accident in West Virginia nearly claimed his life and his future career.
2: I decided I wanted to jump off of a ramp coming down a mountain and it was 30 feet up in the air. And so apparently, I say apparently because I don't remember the accident. I was in a coma for a little while. I don't remember that, obviously. It's kind of crazy and weird to think about, but I think it's a blessing in disguise. I don't remember any of the pain or the suffering. My first memory is checking out of rehab.
13: Although he didn't break any bones, the trauma to his head was significant.
2: Doctors and medical professionals, I think, jumped to the worst conclusions sometimes and said that I would never be the same again, meaning I would never be able to do martial arts, let alone teach it, let alone trick or even run on a treadmill.
13: But he wasn't about to accept that prediction.
2: I'm not a big fan of having somebody point their finger at you and decide what you are or are not capable of accomplishing. I took that into my hands and just decided to work as hard as I could to prove these medical professionals wrong.
13: With time, patience, and dedication, he slowly began to recover.
2: I started to regain my skill sets back, and I started to trick again. I started to dance, and I wasn't nearly as good as I was in the past, but that's when I took the first step that changed my life, and I booked a flight to L.A.
13: Mo says before the accident, he wouldn't have had the nerve to leave home. But when a friend told him about an audition for the world tour of How to Train Your Dragon Live Spectacular, he decided to take the chance.
2: All of a sudden, I was a new person, and I decided, you know, I wanted to not live my life in fear. I wanted to follow my instincts. I wanted to follow my gut. and when to think so logically about everything, you know? And so booking that flight, I ended up booking the job.
13: That gig jump-started his career, helping him land roles in film and television, But Mo says performing live is a much more personal experience, which he's excited to share with his friends and family.
2: Coming back to D.C. is, I can't even begin to describe how fulfilling it's going to be, God willingly. This is something that I've been looking forward to do for a really long time. To have my mom see me portray this character that she could even relate to growing up as a kid, it almost brings tears to my eyes.
13: And even though his mailbox is in California, Mo says the D.C. region will always be home. I'm Lauren Landau.
0: Today's show with our monthly look at our region's literary life, a series we call Bookend. In this edition, Jonathan Wilson sits down with the claimed novelist Alice McDermott. If her name rings a few bells, it might be because she's been a Pulitzer Prize finalist three times, and in 1998, her novel Charming Billy took home the National Book Award. But what you may not know is that McDermott is a longtime resident of Montgomery County, Maryland. She chatted with Jonathan at one of her favorite local hangouts to talk about her latest novel and her everyday approach to creativity.
5: Tell us where we are for people who uh, may not know and tell us why this place has some meaning to you.
6: Oh, nice. (laughs) We are at the Irish Inn at Glen Echo, right next door to Glen Echo Park in Bethesda. Um, This is sort of my local hangout. I don't live too far from here, and um, I've been coming here for years. As a matter of fact, my youngest son, who plays Irish music, um, got his start playing in the pub here on Monday nights. I come with family. I come down to hear the music on Mondays, Um, dinner outside under the patio, uh, special occasions, um, birthday parties. We've done it all down here. It's It's a great neighborhood place.
5: I want to talk about uh, your latest book is called Someone. It'll be out in paperback in October. It's set in the Irish Catholic community in New York, same place you grew up. I know that the novel is set, or at least begins, a little bit before you were born. Um, I'm wondering how early on in your life you actually um, started thinking about writing as either a passion or a vocation. And then, you know, at what point it became clear to you that I could actually do this for a living, or or did that kind of happen by accident?
6: Long Island in those days was not uh, the sort of place that um, being in the literary arts was your first uh, first choice of a career or something that you would even consider um, I, I was one of those kids who always wrote a lot of kids do you know you draw pictures you write anything to just uh, sort of uh, take control of your world. I was the youngest I had two uh, imperious older brothers. I didn't get to um, often complete sentences at the dinner table. So writing was a way of, of saying what nobody asked me to say. Um, and it really wasn't until, uh, I mean, I, you know, I'd love to read. Um, I think it really wasn't until I was in college um, that I had the kind of response to my work. Um, I had a wonderful professor um, who told me I was a writer, um, which was what I needed to hear. Um, and I began to slowly think about maybe this was a way of, um, making a living or not even, uh, necessarily of making a living, but certainly something that, um, would be a great thrill to pursue.
5: And talk about your first kind of success. I mean, when did it become clear to you that, um, you know, it's not just my professors who think this, but I could actually get something published. Was that a struggle?
6: No, I've been very fortunate. Um, I had published a couple of short stories, um, and uh, I had a wonderful professor. I'd I'd gotten my master's in English, and one of the writers that I studied with at the University of New Hampshire was a novelist who um, encouraged me to show some of my work to a literary agent, uh, which I did. Um, She was very encouraging, and she took what, uh, at the time, was just the first hundred pages of my first novel, and literally the first hundred pages. I had not written page 101 yet, Um, and she took it to Jonathan Galassi, who was a young, up-and-coming editor at the time with Houghton Mifflin, and within a week, I had a contract, and um, that scary notion that I was going to have to actually finish this first novel... (laughs)
5: You're writing uh, day-to-day writing methods or style. I'm wondering, has that changed over the years since you were a younger writer and now that you, you know, have a family and are here in, in D.C. And, and settled? I mean, I guess a better way to ask the question, what is your everyday life like and how do you fit the writing into that everyday life?
6: Well, I learned really early on um, when I sort of committed to to this pursuit um, of, of spending most of my time writing fiction um, that I had to te- treat it as if it were a real job. Um, you know, this might be my, my middle-class background, um, the, the Irish work ethic, which isn't quite the same as the Protestant work ethic. <laughs> but still, it's uh, get a job and show up every day. Be there. Um, and don't complain. <laughs> you know, Who do you think you are? You're nobody special. Go to work. Um, so I've always thought of this as a real job. And I learned that if I didn't, no one else would. Um, if, if I um, you know, pulled any of those, oh, I can't write, I must go to Paris and, and, and drink uh, champagne, um, nobody, would tol- nobody around me would tolerate that kind <laughs> of behavior either. So it's just, it's a job. If it's not going well, tough. You gotta still go to work even when it's not going well. So
5: you have those days where you don't have an idea or you can't figure out how to write something. You don't turn on the TV or go for a walk necessarily you really kind of hammer it out.
6: Yeah, pretty much suffer <laughs> you, know, you know right right um, There's
5: that Catholic background right,
6: right exactly you know you know and I, I put notes in my notebook like you know why didn't I go to law school and nobody <laughs> understands how hard this is and why am I doing this and who cares We all do that. I see my students um, you know they all su- we all suffer through that. Um, you know you're choosing. Uh, to spend your life making up stories. Um, You know, and as I always say to my students, um, no one ever asked any of us to write our first story. Um, You know, no one looks at a baby and says, you are going to be a great novelist and you really need to start writing now. Um, Something in us says, this is what I must do. Um, And if you don't have that something in you that says, this is what I must do, congratulations, that's wonderful. You don't have to do it. But if you do have it, you can't ask for anybody's sympathy. It's there, and all you can do is pursue it.
0: That was novelist Alice McDermott talking with Metro Connection's Jonathan Wilson. You can hear more of their conversation, including McDermott sharing the titles she finds herself reading and rereading these days on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Lauren Landau, Lauren Ober, and Julie Alderman, along with reporters Tatiana Safronova and Kenneth Burns. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant, and our intern is Julie Alderman. Thanks as always to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song "Every Little Bit Hurts" is from the album "It Was Easy" by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website, MetroConnection.org. Just click this week on Metro Connection or subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll celebrate Labor Day with a show we're calling 925. From pediatric surgeons to shuttle bus drivers to street musicians, we'll talk with Washingtonians about their work and how their gigs shape everyday life in our fair city. Plus, we'll explore the capital's craze for co-working.
5: It creates this interactivity, which you don't get when you're siloed in, in a traditional office.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WANU 88.5 News.